stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. Coming to you live from our new $10,000 studio. I'm just kidding. Our house is full of bear mace. <laughs> We're recording in a house full of bear mace. Yeah, that <laughs> happened. It did. Hello, everyone. I'm Chad. And I'm Emily. And you're listening to The Long Road Home. Welcome. Yeah, if our voices sound a little different, a little hoarse, it's because we inhaled bear spray yesterday. Our dog accidentally. Yeah, our dog bit a can of it. Open. He's okay. He is okay. He's totally fine. If anything, it kind of look it just like exploded on his paw a little bit. He seems fine. He doesn't seem to care at all anymore. Uh, he really made a mess though. Yeah, we care. And the house is full of it. We've tried to wash everything. We've fucking. I took Febreze and sprayed the air, hoping that it would just bond like in the commercial. <laughs> like in the com- Take it down into the floor. I don't think it worked because I am still just smothered. Yeah, we've My scrubbed nose the hurts. carpet. We've washed the the bed sheets. We've washed all of our clothes. We took a really long shower. I've washed my hands in Dawn two dozen so many, so times. many times. Yep. Um, so. still can't touch my eyes without no, them burning. Not even a little. My bit. nose has been burning for over twenty four hours mm-hmm. now. Yeah. It's so, part of us. Um, it's part yeah, of us. Yeah, we're just a little spicy now. We are. So if our voice <laughs> sounds a little deeper, like mine does, it's not <clears throat> sexy, ladies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hello. Well, gravelly tone. That's why. That's it. Because of bear mace. Just, you know, it's casual. Yeah. Uh, we do not have a studio also. By the way, <laughs> by the way, we've you and I both have been calling it bear mace since the since the event. That's what we're calling it now, since the event. But I've never called it bear mace until now. I've always called it bear spray. Well, it's mace. I know for I a think fact. Now, because it's like, because it's harmed us, we both yes. are calling it mace. Like, don't take it lightly. Yeah, the verbiage is not changed. just bear spray. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's rebranded yeah permanently we hope everyone out there has had a great week that didn't involve bear mace yeah Uh uh-huh hope your air in your home is is fresh and clean you can breathe without coughing you can touch your face yeah we hope things are good for you i guess i shouldn't be touching my face anyway no no one should don't ever touch your face there's a lot of stuff going on there's uh, eldritch horrors out there that could be on your fingertips so don't touch your face right psa um, hope you enjoyed the mini-sode. we got plenty yeah. more of those coming up. We've really enjoyed doing that. And uh, keep an eye out, guys. I'm going to be posting more of our stuff on YouTube. It's going to be a busy week for us. I'm going to try and get stuff going in the Discord, all sorts of things. But for now, relax and enjoy this episode as we take you back to the 1700s. We're taking on a topic. As American as apple pie and smothering amounts of debt, there are a few things that interest me more than a good old early American haunting. Something about the idea of a spirit floating through a dimly lit Victorian-style home on a chilled fall night really rustles my jimmies just the right way. And today, we're going to be discussing what many consider the first true American haunting. It's a story of love, disproportionate age gaps, and what appears to be a very voyeuristic ghost. We're talking about America's first ghost today, Nellie Butler. Yes, it's going to be fun. Emily found this story. I did. Um, I kind of came across it accidentally, and she just took over. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about Nellie. It, it's a really cool story. We we're going to do like a couple of different ones, but we found this one, and it just is 
pretty big, and we thought we'd make it its own episode. So not super spooky, but um, strange and very involved. <laughs> There's very just a involved. lot to this story. Yeah, it's uh, more think poltergeist activity, and a mm, lot of times poltergeists mm. are like this. It's uh, think like uh, Jeff the Talking Mongoose. I that's exactly what I. It's thought very of. similar vein, and if you don't know who that is, look it up. Maybe we'll do an episode on that That'd be really one of these fun. days. Yeah. So before we begin, we should thank our sources. We have darkhistories.com, newengland.com, and... The Nellie Butler Hauntings. Yes, and that's an actual book. Correct. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you want links to the Dark History article and the newengland.com article, join our Discord. It's totally free, and we post all of our source links there, so come check them out. Okay, Emily, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with the life and death of Nellie Butler. Before we totally dive in, let's talk about the setting of our story. Perched at the head of Taunton Bay is Franklin, Maine, an East Coast settlement with a frontier personality. Founded in 1764, its soil was harsh and rocky. I mean, it's Maine, so, right? Yeah, it's uh, probably haunted soil. <clears throat> Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> well, yeah, no, actually, definitely haunted. That's the funny thing, coming across the story, it's all like, America's first haunting, and it's like... Not really. White people. It's white people. White America's. people in America's first haunting. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, its soil was harsh and rocky, making farming difficult and only yielding results after the undertaking of backbreaking work. While agricultural work was risky, there was always work to be found in the densely wooded forests in the area that allowed for lumber production. Throughout the colonial era, ship masts were a solid source of trade across Maine, and sawmills took advantage of the tall pines to secure contracts with the British Navy, allowing for industry to grow and flourish. Sooner rather than later, however, the independent spirit of frontier, along with a host of political disagreements and social tensions, led residents to push back against the British monopolization of ship lumber and eventually to revolution. Yeah, so they kind of shot themselves in the foot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were making ship masks for the wrong side. Loyalists. Yeah, damn loyalists. That's a loyalist know, joke for all it. you 1700s <laughs> people out there. Do you remember? You remember Do you remember the, that? Remember, That's what we called them. Remember tea, <laughs> red coats, buttons. Mm. Buttons? Like jacket buttons. Oh, just like that. <laughs> Stop asking me when I say things. <laughs> I always end up explaining my jokes. <laughs> I feel like an asshole. You're not. <laughs> Following the Revolution, Franklin was a settlement like many others in Maine. Winters were unpredictable and could be devastating. Farming for a living here was a gamble, but land was cheap. Various religions began to spring up here, as well as the rest of the U.S., trying to fill the void left by independence from the English and their religious beliefs. A myriad of revivals and evangelical preachers who sought to bring new forms of worship to the Congregationalist majority, from Quakers to Methodists, as well as a newfound interest into the exploration of the divine. Because of these New Age beliefs, Nellie Hooper could almost be seen as a logical step in the direction that the community was about to take. Yes, and so this sort of all happens during this time of like uh, seances and stuff. And was it the Fox Sisters? Was that their name? Oh, I'm not sure. It sound, that sounds about right. Sort of the same time period, maybe even a little bit earlier. And uh, this could be seen as sort of the start of that whole spiritual movement in New England. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I can totally see it. Yeah. There was such a void left when we left the church that people were looking for literally anything. It's very interesting to see how like early Christian beliefs were just like, yeah, there's uh, fucking ghosts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, God. I'm trying to. I'm sorry. I I got distracted because I was trying to think of when Mormonism came in. Very similar time period. That's what I thought. Yeah. Anywho, David and Joanna Hooper had married and settled in Franklin during the later half of the 18th century. 
Hooper had fought in the American Revolution, and now a veteran, he began his life in earnest with Joanna Hooper, who promptly birthed nine children in nine years. Uh, nine children in nine years. They could have a TV show in, today. From 1775 to 1784. Whew, what a woman. Yeah, Joanna, we've got our land here in Maine. You know your duty now. Make the workers. Make them workers. <laughs> Gotta have at least nine so four of them survive. We need them. We need at least four max. Yep. Four minimum. Four minimum. Have to live. Not wrong. (laughs) Um, Anyway, one of those children was Eleanor Hooper. Eleanor Hooper was born on April 25th, 1776. Known locally as Nellie, at the age of 19, she met a man named George Butler. George was a young sea captain whose father, Moses, had also fought in the American Revolution. They were fairly well off as far as early Americans went. They owned a sawmill in the town of Franklin and were considered some of the town's earliest English settlers. Yeah, they were doing all right. They literally seized the means of production in their town. They they had, a, I guess there were probably multiple sawmills, but they were one of the families that seemed to be doing like pretty well for themselves in Franklin. Right. So, young couple coming from two well-off families, well-to-do families, um, and they get married. Nellie and George married and lived together on Butler Point in Franklin, a heavily wooded area lying on the eastern banks of Egypt Bay. No one knew had ever been to Egypt, but there was. <laughs> no, they definitely There was it. in Maine. Two years after their marriage, Nellie got pregnant. However, she became the unfortunate victim of a complicated childbirth and died on the 13th of June, 1797, less than a day after the passing of her newborn baby son. She was buried on Butler Point in an unmarked grave. For the now widowed George Butler, life stood relatively still for a few years, until the winter of 1799 fell across Maine, bringing with it not only bleak, cold nights, but also a rather peculiar and controversial series of events that would see his life turned into a public show for all and the community to watch. It's like that Jim Carrey movie, but a ghost is there. <laughs> Which Jim Carrey movie? The one where his, uh, everyone's filming his life. Ah, oh, Truman Show! Yeah, he's like the Truman Show, but with a... Old ghost. Ah, just on display. And yeah. I could see it. Well, it's really interesting how it goes down, but we'll, we'll get into it. So, now that Nellie is dead, the hauntings can begin in earnest. Woo! It seems like Nellie's mission as a ghost was twofold, and the first part of her goal was to ensure that George remarried. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, no, that was definitely her She goal. liked to watch. Oh. And who else did Nellie want to see George with? Why, none other than a 15-year-old girl named Lydia Blaisdell. And what better way to begin the process by showing up unannounced in the family basement? <laughs> yep. So, just a brief overview of the Blaisdell family. It was headed by a man named Abner Blaisdell, another veteran of the American Revolution, because literally everyone that was alive had fought in the war at this point. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like they were definitely, uh, in all the articles I read, trying to highlight all of the veterans. Yeah. And it's like... If you hadn't wandered far, far west at this point... You had either fought in the American Revolution or you were dead. Yeah. Because you got shot and died in the American Revolution. You were involved in some way. Yeah, one way or the other, but these are just the people that came back. Like many at the time, though, Abner was a religious man and the family followed in step, praying together and seeking to live their lives right in the eyes of God. Abner and his wife, Mary, had seven children, five of which were boys and two were girls. The first girl was named Hannah and was born in 1780, and the second, Lydia, was born five years later in 1785. The Blaisdell house where our haunting begins was also situated in Franklin in the north of the town on a 100-acre farm plot. 
Lydia and Hannah, the only two female children, spent their days sorting and picking wool fleece in the cellar of the family home. What girl wouldn't want to be doing that? Hashtag dream life. So glad I don't live there. <laughs> I'll never understand people that this is the life that they want to live now. Like, I get that social media can be toxic and cars, everything moves so fast these days. But man, just churning butter. Making your own butter. Churning butter, 12 hours. Wiping down everything with linseed oil so it doesn't rot. I think that's called masochism, if you ask me. Well, that's why everyone was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're totally right. Anyway, starting in August of 1799, Lydia began hearing a series of knocking sounds coming from the cellar. The earliest account concerning these noises states that, quote, the very first notices of anything unaccountable were given at the time when Lydia Blaisdell was at the point of death. This is because Lydia Blaisdell, almost 15 years of age, had found herself in a severe struggle against a form of pestilence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rough. Yeah. What is pestilence? Just, it's it's a word that's used, like, it's like a generic term used for a bunch of different she had things, the fits. But it's, a, it's an infection. She, had the, sort of, no, she had the pork sweats. No, it's some sort of infection. Okay. <laughs> yeah. In, All right. Well, that's gross. 1799. 15 years old, dying of an infection. Love that this this was a better time period. Yes. And so she was, um, one of the words that I came across a bunch was that she was convalescing. Ah, shaking. No. <laughs> no. <What>? That's convulsing. <laughs> no, convalescing is the word that you, they used, like, for... When you're getting better and you can, like, basically you're just, like, laying about. You're, like, sick and just, like, laying about. Right? I mean, Just being a slob, taking up our resources, not farming. Yes. (laughs) Convalescence is the gradual recovery of health and strength after illness or injury. Great. But it's always, anytime I hear the word convalescence, I always just think, like, a woman left, like, laying On a fainting chair. Yeah, kind of, but it's, like, covered in a sheet and she's, like, just, like, laying kind of, like. Yes. She's uh, doing the, con- the pose, I'm the fainting chair pose with yes. the hand on the forehead. Yes, that's what I'm doing to try to get Chad to understand. I understand. You, I understood you, the you, first time. Do you see time. her? Okay. Yes. It was during this time of struggle that the first of several unusual encounters would occur in the Blasdale farmhouse. After a thorough searches of the cellar failed to turn up anything to account for the strange sounds, the family prayed together that if there was any deception in the extraordinary injunction, the Lord would make it known to them, and that if the cause was of God... They might be preserved. Isn't that interesting? That what? They heard knocking. They looked around. They couldn't find anything. And then they went and they were like, God, please reveal what's happening to us. It is. I mean, I guess it's what else did they know to do, though? Really? It's like such a strange belief system back then. Yeah. No, definitely. I don't know. I just feel like I've heard a lot of ghost stories where people heard weird noises and then just didn't do anything for a long time. Yeah. And I just thought it was really interesting that that's. They got gathered together as a family to like pray and solve this mystery. Well, I mean, I guess you're fucking bored. But also, there's like not a lot happening. This is a pretty. But like, witch fever was rampant in New England, right? Like right. they were looking like for this type of activity, and when they saw it, I'm sure this is what their first instinct was. Interesting. Okay. It wasn't long before the knocking sound progressed, and the Blasdale family began hearing the voice of a woman coming from their cellar. During this time, the voice announced itself to be who else but the spirit of Nellie Butler hanging out in the basement. Not Nell- her basement, by the way. No, just a basement. Not she a family that there. she was, yeah, really related. She wasn't related to or. No. But she, I mean, She was just there. Yeah. Nellie's disembodied voice darted around the cellar, claiming to be on a divine mission to bring about the marriage of George and Lydia. 
Abner obviously had a few problems with this since Lydia was only 15 at the time, which apparently was actually a young age to be married off in the 1700s. I did not know that. Yeah, most young women got married around 18 or 19 at Mm. that time. Nellie would say things like, The parties must be joined, and what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Asunder? That's a good vocab word. Uh, I do think it's funny that the divine mission was to marry her ex-husband and this small girl because apparently God had nothing better to do that day. Oh, gosh. I don't know if I want to give it away yet. Don't give anything away. Yeah, it's really interesting um, considering the later sequence of events. At some point in December, the ghost did manage to convince Abner because this continued. This was not a one-time incident. They heard this voice for a long time. It just kept coming back and going, hey, marry your daughter to George. Hey, George, you know, he needs you. This union is divine. Yeah, he, she just floated around their basement for a long time and Abner was just like, I'm not having it. No way, no how, no way, Will. Maybe a little... Well, I don't know. Okay. And eventually she did convince him reluctantly to let this happen. I will say it's a pretty strong man that's just like telling a ghost to fuck off. No for way. A <laughs> yes. Especially like a you highly religious out. man Who that's do you like think this you are? God's this is God's plan for your daughter. She must marry now. And he's like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> you think like you hear about like the Bible's full of stories about the spirit coming to to tell someone what to do. And you just, and like, just like, nah. Yeah, he's like, nah. nah. I don't think this is right. No. Mm, no. Nelly also convinced them. This is ridiculous. Nelly also convinced them to cross the Taunton River on New Year's Day to relay the message to George that his dead wife wanted him to be getting it in while she was away. The message was to be delivered alongside a verse from Scripture, Mark 10, and specifically the lines, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. (laughs) So Lydia and her father listened to Nellie for some reason, and they made the journey to Franklin in a snowstorm, crossing the ice sheets on the frozen Tauntaun River. I mean, really. Very perilous. Nellie was not waiting around. She was like, you got to go now. Uh, Along the journey, Lydia became upset. Apparently, she too was not overly keen on the concept of marriage, especially one ordered from beyond the grave. However, Nellie appeared to her, consoling her and spurring her forward through the storm. Yeah, she wasn't giving up. She said, bitch, you got to go. She was like, oh. No, no, no. No, you're doing this now. We're doing this. When they arrived at the Butler residence, however, they were told by Moses in no uncertain terms that their journey had been in vain. Abner insisted that it was the will of his diseased daughter-in-law that they... Deceased. Abner insisted that it was the will of his deceased daughter-in-law. Abner insisted that it was the will of his deceased daughter-in-law and that they came with her message, that the spirit had traveled with them, and if they wished a miracle as further proof, that they should wish it and it would happen. So, you know how he said he didn't believe in spirits and miracles and stuff? Maybe he does now. Oh, he yeah. definitely does now. He definitely does now. Yeah, he changed his mind pretty quick, honestly. But Moses, unsurprisingly, told them they were full of shit and to get out of his house. He was not buying it at all. Not into it, at least initially. Yeah, and then it's really interesting what happens next. Yeah, well, they left, but as the minutes and hours after their departure passed, he began having second thoughts. Why would Abner come all this way in such poor weather conditions, essentially risking his life to strike a proposal for a marriage that he himself had opposed for so long? Isn't that funny? Like just, just like a fairy. So, tale. like, think about it. Like, you're at your home, just hanging out. It's the middle of like a big blizzard, 
and some people that you know from town that like, by the way, George had, he had already been interacting with Lydia prior to this. Um, but Abner was like super against it. They weren't like officially courting or anything, but everything that I said, everything that I saw said that they were like being, they were taking steps to they be brushed elbows a few times. Courting. Exactly. So Abner was like super against this relationship. Now he shows up at your door and is like, they have to get married. There's a ghost. Your the ghost of your daughter-in-law, your dead daughter-in-law, walked all the way over with us in the blizzard. And you're like, what the fuck? Get out of here. You're crazy. Why are you here? We've been arguing about this for a minute. Like, go away. And then he's sitting around. And he's staring at the fire. Maybe he has an ale. And he's like, those two hiked through a blizzard. Yeah, they took In seventeen ninety nine winter gear. Like not they didn't have no Gore Tex. <laughs> no. Not at <laughs> all. You know? To come and tell me this. Like maybe they were serious. Maybe I was a little um hostile. Maybe I was a little unneighborly. <laughs> Lydia and her father returned home only in time to hear once again the familiar knocking coming from the cellar, announcing the arrival of Nellie Butler to their home. This time, Nellie wanted the messengers to go and see David Hooper, her own father and father-in-law to George Butler, to arrange for him to come and see the spirit for himself. Not overly thrilled about having to trek another six miles in a snowstorm, so soon after returning, the pair left it until the next morning to carry out Nellie's latest orders. So yeah, they literally get back after that journey, their failed journey. They get back and Nellie's like, you gotta go back out in the snow, go find my dad now. And they're like, um, we're gonna get a little sleep first. Nellie, we're tired. It's, uh, you know, I didn't, I skipped dinner for this. Seriously, why don't you float your ass over there yourself? It's freaking cold, Nellie. On the morning of January 2nd, Lydia and Abner Blaisdell stepped out into the harsh winter weather once more to make the journey to the home of David Hooper and Franklin. Now, I also read somewhere that Hooper was actually asked to come to their home instead of them going there because, I mean, fuck walking around in cold weather. I'd rather be the guy drunk on hot cocoa and Bailey's waiting on the dude willing to walk through another snowstorm. Regardless of how it happened, the request was successful and David Hooper agreed to visit the Blasdell residence later that day to confirm the identity of his daughter. So, they're doing an identity check on a ghost. They also visited George Butler at the same time, delivering the same message and inviting him also to visit his deceased wife in their cellar. So, the two men decide to take these people up on their bullshit and go check out the cellar. They put on their long johns, cinch up their under trousers, pull their trousers up, button the trousers from the bottom to the top, put on their under vest, their blouse, cinch up their corset, button up the corset, button up their roughest feeling shirt, put on their vest, take their stopwatch and put it in the vest pocket, throw on their jacket and head out the door. It's probably good they were wearing all these layers because that way nobody could smell them piss themselves when they actually entered the cellar and saw the ghost of Nellie Bullock because that's what happened. <laughs> Yeah. They saw Nellie. They saw her, man. She just popped up right in front of them, and I that positive ID. Both of the men are actually documented as having conversations with Nellie at this time, showing their conviction that what they saw was indeed their deceased relative. The first testimony we have is from Hoover. By the request of the specter, sent by two messengers, I went to Abner Blaisdell's house, and by conversing with he, obtained such clear and irresistible tokens of her being the spirit of my own daughter as gave me no less satisfaction than admiration and delight. She gave a reason satisfactory to me why she put me to the trouble of coming here there instead of her coming to my house. I that love that. I love that he asked, Nellie, why didn't you come over to our house? Yeah, what a typical and parent. And then she gave a satisfactory reason why 
said this that no this we is my daughter we didn't get the quote on the actual reason but we know that it was satisfactory yes he was okay with this he said okay she you know what this it was made worth sense. my it trip. made sense to go to lydia's house this was worth all the buttons i had to put on <laughs> <laughs> next up we have the testimony of george butler who showed up at the blasdell home shortly after hooper had finished conversing with the spirit his testimony proceeds much along the same lines when I was called to talk with this voice, that's I asked. The same, that's the same voice. That's only what I got. It's only old Tommy English. Lower the got. register a little bit. <clears throat> Are all the men talking up here? Yes. Do they okay. all just have okay, testicles wait. that have not dropped? It's all in their layers. Oh. <clears throat> when I was called to talk oh with this God. voice, I asked. <laughs> <laughs> when I was called to talk with this voice, I asked, Who are you? It answered, I was once your wife. The voice asked me, do you remember what I told you when I was alive? I answered, I do not really know what you mean. <laughs> no, I don't remember. Nellie said, oh, men. The voice men said, never remember anything, <laughs> we tell them. Do you not remember I told you I did not think I should live long with you? I told you that. If you were to leave me, I should never wish to change my condition, but that if I was to leave you, I could not blame you if you did. This passed between me and my first wife while she was alive, and there was no living person within hearing but she and myself, and I am sure that this was never revealed to any person, and no living person could have told it to me before the voice did. There was something appeared to my view right before me, like a person in a winding sheet, her arms folded under the winding sheet, and on her arm there appeared to be a very small child. By this appearance I did not know possibly, but I might be deceived. I reached out my left hand to take hold of it. I saw my hand in the middle of it, but could feel nothing. The same evening, it appeared and disappeared to me three times. So he's hooked. He's convinced. Yeah. From then on out. They got paid by the word back then. <laughs> yeah. They're, I mean, once again. Detailed. Very detailed. detailed. They, it's just like, they're just happy details. to have something to do. Uh, there's also a third man, Frederick Crusoe, who was just there with George. He just tagged along, and he was kind of just chilling, and uh, he did confirm that George Butler placed his hand on the apparition, and he saw his hand pass through it. I'm sure he was like, George, I just came over here to have some hot cocoa and Baileys and get drunk, and now I'm watching you touch a spirit. <laughs> Can we please go back and get drunk? This is the only day that I'm not plowing the fields until midnight. <laughs> David Hooper took his experience at the Blasdale home and his meeting with the deceased directly to Moses Butler, where he confirmed the truth to him, that the ghost of Nellie Butler had arisen in the cellar of the home, that he had spoken to it, and that its wish was a divine order for the marriage of Lydia Blasdale to George Butler. And so, with this knowledge and a heavy sigh, Moses Butler resigned to the inevitable. After all, who was he to stand in the way of God's will? On the 5th of January, he set off towards Franklin to inform Abner that he would give the marriage his blessing. With both fathers now reluctantly on board, all that was left to take care of was the marriage date, which was quickly set up to take place on Butler's Point on May 29, 1800. So, this ghost did a whole lot in the span of a couple of days. Convinced a lot of people. Hustling. This, how old was George? Do, you, do we know? There was a very was 29. large... 29. Okay, so pretty significant age gap. Yeah, double, um, like nearly double Lydia's age. Yeah, and apparently he was into it <laughs> also. Yeah, like I said, they had been kind of... George they were, was cool. They were on their cool way to courting yeah. prior to this. I mean, At least yeah, he and was. she was 15. At least and she he was, was on his way to courting. And it, that's like not cool. But um, as soon as the marriage was made public, dissenting voices began to appear. Strangely enough, the problem to the townsfolk was less... 
the large age gap between the two and more that a ghost was making it happen. Yeah, did not like that. Um, <laughs> there were also many who thought Lydia was attempting to dupe George Butler into marrying her, whilst others mulled over the possibility that necromancy was at play and the spirit was nothing more than a demon or a demon familiar. Back to the witch idea. Ha ha! It's necromancy! Ha ha! They've raised the spirit from the dead to make George Butler have sex with this 15-year-old. Yes, it was all her idea. She's an evil witch who just wants to get some D yeah. from George Butler. These accusations were hard on Lydia, who actually tried at one point to leave the town and go live with relatives further south to York, Maine. The ghost of Nellie intervened, though, letting her know that wherever she went, quote, her affliction would sail with her. Yeah, she did not. <laughs> she wasn't letting her fucking go. Ruthless. Ruthless. She really wanted to watch this happen. I don't understand it. I don't understand her intention, especially because of what happens. But we'll get there. We're getting there. We're getting there. At some point during the brief courtship period, Sally Wentworth, Nellie's skeptical sister, visited the Blysdale home. Along with her husband, Moses Wentworth, and George Butler, she said of the spirit, quote, We heard the sound of knocking. Lydia spoke and a voice answered, the sound of which brought fresh to my mind that of my sister's own voice. In an instant, but I could not understand it at all, though it was within the compass of my embrace, and had it been a creature which breathed, it would have breathed in my face. I passed through the room which led to the cellar into another room, and there I was much surprised when I plainly understood by the same kind of voice, still speaking in the cellar, these words, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Why the fuck are you saying that, Nellie? From this time, I cleared Lydia as to the voice and accused the devil. Um, yeah, I don't know why Nellie, why Nellie's saying some, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Cryptic. Very I don't, cryptic. Yeah, I don't know why she's using, like, cryptic messages. Um, isn't just speaking plainly to her sister, but there she said it. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. At this point, uh, Nellie's sister is convinced that it's not Lydia putting it on, but she thinks that it's kind of more demonic. And it was an opinion she would hold until her dying day. Her voice, she said, sounded like the voice of her sister, not in health, but whilst she lay on her deathbed. And she's not the, the only person that will go on to say that the voice of Nellie sounds like a dying woman, which is pretty creepy. On the same day, Captain Paul Simpson visited the cellar to witness the ghost on insistence by Paul Blysdale, one of the Blysdale's sons. As was becoming customary by now, they went down into the cellar, put out the dim candlelight, and waited for the knocks. Nellie rapped as expected, and when Paul spoke to her, she replied in the same words as those she spoke to Sally earlier that day. I am the voice of one crying in wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Yeah, so this ghost itself has become very religious. Very devout, yeah. I know, it's interesting. We don't know much of Nellie uh, in her actual life. but um, No, we know more about her dead than we do alive. We do. At least yeah. that I could find. And she liked mm -hmm. some um, poetic monologuing. I do think it's strange. Uh, such a, It is a creepy-ass quote that she chose to use as well. Which part? All of it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like any of it. it makes me uh, scary. Scary sailor stuff going on over there. Sailors are scary to begin with. Much less having a, a ghost spouting that bullshit at me. No, yep. thanks. That's one creepy basement. Cellar. <laughs> Can you see the same? Cellars are not finished. They have dirt on the floor. Basements also don't have to be finished. What it, so all cellars are basements, but all basements aren't cellars? 
Sure. Sure. <laughs> we'll agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. <laughs> One might think that a ghostly visitation might conjure up a degree of fear in a superstitious population like that of Franklin in 1800, but it seemed Nellie had a certain way with words. In fact, Nellie would routinely reassure visitors to, quote, fear not, and Abraham Cummings, a traveling evangelist, theorized in a later letter on the subject that he believed the reason Nellie would knock to announce her presence, like that of a visitor to a front door, or of only answering once spoken to, was to avoid startling anyone. Yeah, she just wanted to scare you with her words, not her presence. She didn't want to startle you. Just really make you uncomfortable. But maybe make you a little uncomfortable, yeah. yeah. This measure of thoughtfulness extended further according to Cummings being also the reason Nellie would generally only appear in the cellar to allow the Blysdale family to retreat to their homely, comfortable rooms at will without fear of a haunted spirit rudely gate-crashing their private chambers of rest and relaxation. In general, this was a courtesy observed fairly faithfully by the spirit. However, she did also appear in other spots around Franklin on a handful of occasions, visiting houses as far as five miles from Blysdale's farm. Also, her apparitions were not always indoors. Paul Blysdale testified to seeing the spirit in the fields around the Blysdale house in the latter half of January. Quote, I particularly observed that she never touched the ground, her raiment apparent as white as possible. The next evening, she reproved me in hearing of several persons because I had not spoken to her and because I had spoken against her. She told me she had come on God's errand and that if I opposed her, I opposed him who sent her. And the spirit asked me if I lived in such a manner as I would wish to die. Wow. She's really not fucking around. Yeah, no. She's like, don't mess with me. I am a messenger of God and I will fuck you up. (laughs) Do you want to die? Because it looks like you have a death wish. Looks like somebody's cruising for a bruising, Abner. (laughs) Abner. What a terrible name. In the five months between ordering the marriage of Lydia Blysdale and George Butler until the day of the union, news of the spirit began to spill from Sullivan Harbor and spread around the local towns. People began coming from all over to see the apparition of Nellie Butler. Gathering in the Blysdale cellar crammed in to see what all the fuss was about. She routinely conversed with visitors for upwards of two or three hours at a time on all manner of topics. Not all of the visitors were so readily willing to believe, and many who came to see the events for themselves were either skeptical of any spiritual activity or actively hostile to the idea of a ghostly apparition, suspicious that it might be some kind of demon or demon familiar conjured up by a form of necromancy or witchcraft by Lydia. They have no idea what any of these words mean. No, they're just throwing. They're just throwing words. Scary words. Uh (laughs) They're just just fear mongering. Absolutely. Do things really change? No, no, no. If you don't learn your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Also, say that. It's a quote by me. That's also a direct Chad Shelton original. There were other voices too within the town that suspected Lydia of a rather more straightforward, earthly-based deception in order to ensnare George Butler into a communion, and they were growing louder by the day. George, who by now was very much behind the idea of marriage to the young Lydia, protested this idea, but it was no good. It would take a whole lot more to keep her in Franklin, and a whole lot more is what she got. Nellie Butler's ghost spoke to Lydia in front of several witnesses, urging her to stay and insisting that if she were to sail, quote, her afflictions would sail with her. 
It would all be for naught. And so, as the spirit wished, Lydia Blydesdale and George Butler were married on the 29th of May. The two families gathered on Butler's Point to carry out the union. With her wishes fulfilled, the ghost of Nellie Butler may well have shrunk off into the corners of an unspoken history, spurned on only by rumors and hearsay of the local townsfolk. Nellie, however, was just getting started. Now, for all intents and purposes, we can look at this date right here as the end of Nellie's Watch My Husband Get Boned, Phase 1. Now, we move on to Phase 2, Preach the Gospel, Praise God. (laughs) That's right. Before Phase 2 began, there was a bit of a pause in Nellie's visitations, but not before she gave George and Lydia the twist their marriage needed. This is my, this is why I'm so confused about the whole point of it. Yeah, uh, it seems like it was just some spite. Right? (laughs) Maybe she just hated Lydia. Anyway. Maybe she hated them both. Maybe. The day after Lydia and George were married, Nellie took it upon herself to visit the newlyweds with a message of prophecy. Lydia, she claimed, was not long for this world. She went on to explain that Lydia would get pregnant and give birth to just one child before an untimely death, just as it had happened to herself. And with the prophecy delivered, the seller of the Blysdale home fell quiet for a while. During this pause, locals still whispered rumors around town about Nellie, Lydia, George, and all sorts of other shit. After a 63-day absence, the ghostly activity launched into overdrive. As if she meant to dispel all the rumors about her at once, Nellie returned a fiery, gospel-singing madwoman, dazzling and overwhelming spectators with its powers. She began to speak prominently about religious matter, almost turning the cellar into a church for yet another weird New England religion. Yeah, people started just coming down there and chatting with her about church shit. She was really into it suddenly. Yeah. It's like she got tired of watching her husband pork a 15-year-old and was like, maybe I should have read the Bible instead of doing this. Maybe it's time for uh, a change in this town. (laughs) Yeah, maybe this town. This town's disgusting. I must come back from the dead and cleanse this town. I will give sermons in a basement. I've seen enough 15-year-olds get porked. By my ex-husband. Oh my god, you used the pork, the word pork so many times. I don't think twice. I've ever ho- heard you use that word before. I've used it twice. That's my limit. Okay. <laughs> On at least 29 occasions in August of 1800, she was witnessed by over 100 people. Always, the ghost would invite the witnesses into the cellar. Abner Blysdale would blow out the candlelight, plunging the room into darkness, and the visitation would commence opening, as it always did, with a series of knocks from Nellie Butler to announce her arrival. I think it's like kind of important to note that Abner was pretty chill about the fact that there were all these people coming into his home. I don't think he ever charged anyone to see Nellie. No, it was not. It, it was like really a, re- a religious experience. Yeah. They didn't, I don't, I don't think in, I saw anywhere yeah. that they asked for money or he anything. He genuinely thought something amazing was happening, and he was just like spreading the gospel. Yeah, and he was. Just, he just allowed people to come and see it. He really, yeah, he was really cool about it, honestly. I don't know if I would have been. Yeah, seriously. Nellie's of course, kind when of you're like, in a religious mania, a lot of things are probably, uh, you know, a little easier to accept. Right, but Nellie's like pretty presumptuous. Yeah, yeah, she, she is. She took over these people's lives. Very, very <laughs> she, fast, too. Very quickly. Yeah. And then it was also like, oh, now that you're married, you're going to die. Now that I got you to marry George, Ooh. you won't last long. Ooh, you're going to die. At times, she never appeared at all. On other, occasion, on other occasions, she appeared only to a select few, whilst others standing mere feet away saw nothing. 
she always appeared wearing a glowing white dress or shroud. At times, she wore a cap and others not. Sometimes she was seen cradling the body of her dead baby in her arms. Her visage was described by Mary Gordon in her later testimony. Quote, At first, the apparition was a mere mass of light that grew into a personal form, about as tall as myself. We stood in two ranks about four or five feet, of, about four or five feet apart. Between these ranks, she slowly passed and repassed so that any of us could have handled her. When she passed by me, her nearness was that of contact, so that if there had been a substance, I would have certainly felt it. The glow of the apparition had a constant, tremulous motion. Her voice would flitter across the room, instantaneously moving from a distance 10 or 12 feet from the spectators, at others, leaning into their ears and speaking next to their heads. I think that's the most interesting part of this to me. I mean, all of it's pretty crazy, but like the moving voice is uh, pretty wild. Yeah, and it's consistently spoken about that yes. that her voice could just flit about the room, and sometimes it would shake the house, and other times it would just be a whisper right in your ear. Yeah. <laughs> all of this carry-on invited many skeptics. Some professed that the voice of the spirit was merely the voice of Lydia Blysdell. However, Nellie addressed this directly by sending Lydia away in front of these skeptical inquirers. About 14 persons by the direction of the specter went into the cellar. As soon as they were there, the specter said to Lydia Blysdell, Go up and sit with the others on the kitchen hearth, that this company may know that it is not you who speaks. After she was gone, the ghost conversed with the company on several topics suited to authenticate her mission. Likewise, Nellie spoke of her past life to others in an attempt to win over their belief. Uh, here's another witness quote. She mentioned several incidents of her past life, known only to her husband, as he declared, and asked him if he remembered them. He said yes. She asked him if he had told them. He answered no. And of such a nature were these incidents as to render it utterly improbable that he ever should have mentioned them before. She told Abner Blysdale that his father, who was sick, was, quote, in heaven praising God with the angels. In fact, he had died seven days prior unbeknownst to Abner at the time, and later confirmed by his family in York that they had yet to send the news at all. It's pretty wild. That is pretty wild. <laughs> she routinely invited people to stand as near as they pleased to her, to handle her if they wished, and to not be afraid, and to ask as many questions as they liked concerning her past life, apparently responding to, the, apparently responding to them, all with satisfactory answers. I like to think that she was just, um, like, breaking all the ghost rules. <laughs> yeah, she was like, no, no, spirit world's cool. Touch me. No, we, it's fine. It's totally fine. Ask me anything you want. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Yeah. Try and, and touch me. <laughs> try and touch me. Come on. Come on. And then there's just, like, Throw your hands in me. Like, oh, you're inside me. Oh, what? Abner. <laughs> and then there's, like, some, like, ghost government that's just, like, about to crack down on Nellie, the Damn ghost. Nellie Butler. Nellie Butler is at it again, holding sermons in the basement, <laughs> telling all the secrets to life. So the hauntings had reached a boiling point by mid-August. As more and more people crammed into the cellar to speak with Nellie, more too spoke in hushed tones of the devilry from the Blasdale basement. As if to counter all this talk in the town of her spirit visitations being the work of the devil, now threatening to overshadow the events taking place there themselves, Nellie began preaching more and more on religious topics, confirming to onlookers that they were safe in her presence and had nothing to fear. Very strange for a ghost. During the month of August, Nellie was asked several questions by various witnesses. Paul Simpson asked her if she loved Christ. She replied, yes, I do, and begun singing Alleluia's, 
a practice that she began to maintain. When she, when someone asked her a question, she would answer it and then go, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. I guess is that is that the, is that like that song? Is that what that is? No, no, that. Well, I have no. no idea what it is. I assume it's just her shouting Hallelujah. Yeah, I mean, did you guys ever not, not like riff in a, in a church song? No, the only riffing we ever did was raising our hands for Amazing Grace. That was like raise your hands, and then we sang the same thing again. That I was like to think it was like a mixing it up. I'm, I'm just going to do some shouts. Uh, Sarah Simpson asked her if she came from happiness or misery. She replied, I am from above and am come on God's message. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. She also addressed the topic directly with Thomas Uran, a skeptical local who had proclaimed to many around him that the spirit was the work of the devil. She said, you have often said that I am a devil or a witch. I am from above, praising God and the Lamb. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Another witness, Paul Simpson Jr., I'll take my Oscar now. Well done, yes. Well done. I'm winning so many Oscars lately. Another witness, Paul Simpson Jr., their lack of names here is frustrating to me. We've yeah, had a lot of similar Several names. Moseses, several Pauls, a couple of Georges. That's the names. You have four names. Not a lot of, you know, energy for, for creative process no. in the 1800s. You name them all Paul because they're, only one of them will live. Right. They're all Paul Jr. because only there will only be one by the time they're adults. This is Paul, 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 and Paul. <laughs> well, what happened to Paul? Hey, Paul didn't make it. Dysentery. But yeah, Paul Simpson Jr. got to take a personal tour of the cellar during this busy time. He left disappointed by his visit to the cellar one night while the family was attempting to thin the crowd in their home. So this is one of the few nights where they had to do something like this, I think. The night he was there, things started to get a little rough down in the basement. This eventually led to undesirables. They were in there, like, knocking on the wall, trying to talk shit to the ghosts, I guess. And they just I'm kinda... sure there were some drunkards that came oh, to fuck yeah, with the ghosts. Oh, yeah, probably a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, and eventually, they had to be removed from the situation by Abner. So that kind of happened. Paul didn't get kicked out, but he just left. He was disappointed. But as he walked home, he decided that this feeling of dissatisfaction would not dissipate unless he could uncover the deception. So he just wanted to know what was going on. He returned to the farmhouse and was allowed into the cellar by Abner, who was invited to light a candle and search until his heart's content. He gave the following account of his investigation. Quote, I came out last and was careful and watched so that I was sure that no person went down. Also, the door was fast. Then again, we heard the sound of knocking. It was addressed, and conversation followed, in the midst of which Abner Blysdale said to me, If you think any living person talks, go forward and grasp that person. I went forward a few steps, but was so convinced that nobody was there that I consider all further attempts as useless. So, I, he suddenly like got a little scared. He was like, no, there's no reason to do that. There's yeah. obviously no one there, yeah, right? It's totally, it's and Abner totally. was like, no, Paul, go, go grab this apparition. And I think he got a little cold feet. Uh, it's Just fine. I believe you. It's fine. He uh, <laughs> he then saw the apparition of Nellie Butler and described it in a fairly interesting manner. He says, quote, I saw the apparition at first about two feet in height, but as it drew nearer to me, it appeared as tall as a person. I saw this appearance passing close by me and from five or six times. At last, it diminished to about a foot in height and then vanished. So that's a very intimate encounter that someone had with Nellie during the height of Nellie mania. In sounds, this little town. Sounds like he was a lucky guy. Sounds like a lot of people got kicked out that night. Things got a little rowdy, got a little busy, and then he went back and got a private tour. Well, things, like we said, had sort of reached a boiling point during this time period. People were coming in droves to see what was going on in Franklin. Uh, there was another town called Sullivan nearby where lots of people lived that were also doing this, and 
The, oh yeah, people were coming from all the, around. Literally all over in the county and from all of other places in Maine. Divisions started to spring up, though, as different sides of the argument as to the, ver- uh, the veracity of the events were now outwardly spoken of, and the events in the Blasdale Cellar were the talk of the town. So people started, dis- they were picking sides. Is this real? Is this not real? Is it the work of the devil? Is it Lydia? Who Is knows? Is it God? Right. Yeah. Families were torn apart. Brother fought brother, and Nelly, for one, couldn't take it anymore. On the night of the 13th and 14th of August, 47 people had gathered to see Nellie, who had something very special arranged for the masses that night. At one o'clock in the morning, she commanded the congregation to march to a neighboring house belonging to one of the loudest skeptics in the village, James Miller. So she Whoa. said, get up, people. We're going to see that asshole James. He keeps saying bad things about We're me. We're taking it to his it. house. We're going to see him. So the walk covered a mile, and on the journey, the group was ordered to file side by side in groups of two, singing the 84th Psalm as they walked. Nellie was with them. She was walking with them during this time. Yep. Nellie assured them she would follow behind the group as they walked. Several witnesses claimed to have seen her walking with them as they marched through the night, whilst others saw nothing. When they reached James Miller's house, the crowd squeezed in through his front door, whilst Paul Blisdell asked him if he would take him down into his cellar. Miller complied, and when he stood below the ground, the voice of Nellie rang out around him. I have come to let you know that I can speak in this cellar as well as in the other. Are you convinced, you little bitch? Whoa. She brought in the fucking game. She was so salty. Yeah. She was really not into anyone doing anything that she didn't want. She was not about it. She was like, I went to school with you, James. Yeah, James, (laughs) you know me, James. Don't lie, James. Apparently, this did convince James, and he joined the group. So he was like, well, fuck it. I guess I'm I'm hearing for this now. We're so marching. He, yeah, he went outside and went and joined the group of people that were around his house. And they just sort of waited for Nellie to reappear. And she did. Once she appeared, the spirit then commanded them to continue marching. She said that she would walk alongside Lydia Blisdell at the head of the parade while Lydia was shrouded in a black cloak. This, the spirit remarked, would finally put an end to the dissenting talk that Lydia was herself behind a nefarious scheme of deception or witchcraft. They then turned back to the Blisdale farmhouse where the bizarre march was to end. Several people, including many of the skeptical, testified to seeing Lydia walk alongside the spirit singing a hymn as they shuffled along. So hearing these stories about the groups of people and some of them see her and some of them don't remind me of like what Joseph Smith did with the golden plates when he finally showed them to people... There was nothing in the the hat, or I can't remember if it was a hat or he had them in a box at the time, but he opened it and was like, do you not see these? And people were like, no. And he was like, are you fucking sure you don't see these? Because God made these and was able to like basically convince people that there was something there even though there wasn't. And I wonder if this was sort of like a group psychosis thing where some people were so convinced in Nellie that they did see her. Yeah. I mean, it very quite, that is a, very logical explanation for what happened. Yes, and, with Nellie Butler. Yes, and that goes back to manifesting UFOs and things like and that. Tulpas and, and things yeah. like that. Yeah, if a group exactly. of people is, are all on the same wavelength they about believe something. Hard enough. Then something could appear. I do believe in fairies. I do believe yeah. in Nellie. <laughs> and I wonder if that's what happened here. I mean, absolutely. Think about what's his name. The who is the guy that they just James, the skeptic that they just marched to his house, like. Yeah, fifty a bunch people, of people come to your house, and like, they're like, "Do you, you hear her now? You believe in her now? I mean, you might be inclined to go, oh yeah, to- uh, totally. Let's yeah. march.'" Following the parade, things began to settle down on the Blasdell farm, but not before the ghost of Nellie Butler would command one last act. She ordered. It's a little dark. 
She ordered for her deceased child to be dug up and reburied closer to her own grave on Butler Point to enable them to rise up to heaven together on Judgment Day. So they did it. (laughs) 80 people from four different towns came and watched them dig up a dead baby and put it 30 feet up to Butler's Point to be reinterred next to the remains of Nellie. And that was kind of the last thing she did. It just, honestly, it kind of fits. She's like, you know what? Fine. We did it. We got James. Now you know what you're going to do. You're going to go dig up that baby. I want that baby. And they were just, they just did it. And then she I left. I thought it was sweet. <laughs> oh, you thought it was sweet? <laughs> Seems a little salty to me. I thought it was more like, she was like, okay, done. I did everything I needed to do. This is the one thing that I needed done for myself. I got everything done for the town. I brought light to the town. I cleared Lydia's name. Now, um, I'd like to have my baby. But so if I she was go. never there, she would never have to have cleared Lydia's name. <laughs> like, why? She showed up and did it to herself. She had to get them married, Chad. It was God's will. Such a strange story. Uh, that was sort of pretty much the last time that she was seen by this group of people. But there was one last final twist to the story. Throughout and despite all the strange happenings of August and the following reinternment of Nellie's newborn child, Lydia and George had settled into their married life. They were now living in Butler's Point in Franklin, and Lydia was pregnant with their first child who was expected in March of 1801. The childbirth was not an easy one, and just as the ghost of Nellie Butler had prophesied ten months previously, neither Lydia nor the baby survived the ordeal. Both were buried alongside Nellie on Butler's Point. This might be one of the darkest parts of the story. Yeah. Uh, shortly after her death, George placed all of her belongings onto a boat and floating it from Butler's Point, set it ablaze like a Viking ship. But as it was pulled by the tides out across the bay, it unfortunately sailed directly past the Blasdale Farm, who saw the move by George as an affront to their daughter. So Can you they imagine? saw their daughter, dead daughter's flaming belongings float by on a boat that obviously came from George's house. Yeah, so, not great. Not, not a good great. look for George again. To them, this was George cutting all ties with the memories of uh, his wife. So the rift that grew between these two groups of people was so strong that it eventually led to the splitting of the local church 16 years later. So, yeah, members of the church were siding with either Abner or George, and eventually they just both, they all created their own churches. Split the, yeah, split the church. And, and George went on to remarry for a third time to a woman named Mary Guggins, and the couple had four children together. Their third time time's a charm. charm. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be hesitant to marry George at this point if I were a local lady. I, but it's like, how many? happened to his first two wives. But we got to compare it to the amount of dead wives the other men have. That's what we're not doing. We're not taking into account. Right. It's the okay, amount the spe- of dead think women. Think about the specific story of these women. It's pretty One of them unique. dies in childbirth after her baby died and then comes and haunts his future second wife who then also dies in childbirth and the baby dies. I'd be like, coming in as number three, I'd be like, things might be a little spooky over there. That's all I'm saying. So after this, Nellie appeared only once more, and it was to the wandering evangelist, Abraham Cummings. He had not been around for much of the events of the hauntings, though he had witnessed the voice speaking in January of 1800, but left feeling unimpressed. Upon his return to Sullivan, however, he had found the situation irresistible. During the remainder of the haunting, he had collected all of the eyewitness testimonies of the local people. He then published all of these testimonies along with a collection of relevant letters in a work that detailed the events surrounding Sullivan and Franklin and of Nellie Butler. 
1806, he had been alerted by two men that the spirit had been seen outside his house in the fields going out to see for himself. And we're going to end this episode with a quote regarding the specter that he saw. Looking toward an eminence twelve rods distance from the house, I saw there, as I supposed, one of the white rocks. This confirmed my opinion on their specter, and I paid no more attention to it. Three minutes after, I accidentally looked in the same direction, and the white rock was in the air, its form a complete globe, white with a tincture of red, like the damask rose, and its diameter about two feet. While my eyes was constantly upon it, I went on four or five steps when it came to me from the distance of eleven rods, as quick as lightning, and instantly assumed a personal form with a female dress. I went into the house and gave the information, not doubting that she had come to spend some time with us as she had before. We went out to see her again, but to my great disappointment, she had vanished. Wow. And that's the story of America's first ghost. Woo! Yeah. Nellie Butler. What a ride. It really, I, I love poltergeist. I love poltergeist stories. I think they're really interesting. And this one in particular, it's just the way that it happened, very cool. I love the idea of like the family poltergeist. Yeah. Like the the family experiencing this thing and then just cohabitating with it. It's so interesting. Yeah, to me. intimate intimate paranormal experiences are very uh compelling to me. I like reading about them and learning more about them like and this this is sort of was how we were going down this episode was find stories about smaller more intimate ghosts and encounters and we ended up with this one big one. We'll do the others in another episode, but this one is definitely intimate and profound to the people who experienced it. Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, not as spooky. No, still very strange. Very strange. Very paranormal. Uh, we're, we're not going to go into all the sensible explanations surrounding the ghost of Nellie Butler simply because it's a whole nother bucket of worms. There's so much more information around this story, though, and we encourage everyone to do a little searching of their own if they want to know more. And as always, we'll be posting links to our sources in the Discord. It's totally free, so join us there and use them as a jumping off point for your own observations. That's right. And speaking of Discord, you can find us on other social media platforms like Instagram and Twitter at the underscore LRH underscore pod. You can also find us on Facebook at the LRH show. And you can reach us via email at the LRH show at gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube. Just search the Long Road Home podcast. I'm uploading old episodes on there. And once I do that, I'm going to start putting up uh, new episodes pretty much the day after they release on Apple and Spotify and stuff like that. So check them out on there. Show your friends. And if you want to contribute to our podcast, you can find us on patreon.com slash the LRH podcast. We have cool tiers. We're going to have some cool stuff in our Discord, which, like I said, is free. And you can find the invite for that on Instagram and Twitter. It's a permanent link that's on there. Click it, join, and talk with us. We're on there a lot. Join us. Guys, I know that uh, we have stickers on the way to some of you. We've just been super busy, haven't been able to make it to the post office yet. We've got those stickers. They're going to be coming very soon so keep an eye out for those and don't forget if you're listening on apple Podcasts, please leave us a review we'd love to see more on there and it's going to help us get to the new podcast page and we need your help to do that so please say something tell us what you liked smash that like button yes please that's it right that's all the things all right well thank you guys once again for listening to another episode here another mini episode is going to be coming at you next monday and yeah don't ever let a dog bite a can of bear mace in your home Don't let it happen. No. And as always, join us next time on... The Long Long Road Road Home. Home. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.